celebrating uh, Independence Day, the 4th of July this morning, and uh, um, hope uh, all goes well with them. Everybody have safe, good travels and enjoyable, enjoyable time, and uh, we, I hope we have an enjoyable time as we have met together to, to worship this morning, and uh, um, Miss Diane's about the same, as best I can tell, just still, still uh, uh, no real change for her. Um, talking to Miss Val, same thing, you know, about the same, working through therapy and, uh, and struggling a little bit. And Miss uh, um, Nancy hadn't hadn't seen her this week, and so I need to follow up Miss Nancy. As far as I know, she's still at the River Place. Um, are there other other prayer needs, prayer concerns, things we could share together this morning? Yes, sir. Thirty three, Psalm thirty three will be our call to worship. Certainly a great truth to uh, contemplate on our Independence Day as we remember our freedom as Americans and the many ways that God has been pleased to uh, to bless the United States with uh, with great uh, freedom and economic prosperity and military might, but it's certainly a good reminder that no king is saved by the multitude of an army and that a mighty man is not delivered by great strength, but the eye of the Lord on those who fear him. And certainly our nation needs to hear a call uh, to repentance, a call to turn from trusting in uh, wrong things and to put our trust in the Lord. And so Psalm 33 verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp, make melody to Him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all His work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them, by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men, from the place of his dwelling he looks on the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually, he considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in His holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, 
be upon us just as we hope in you. Let's pray together. Lord God, that last verse just reminds us of our need for your mercy. Lord, we give you praise as our Creator. You spoke, and it was. You spoke, and it was done. You commanded, and it stood fast. You gathered the water as the, in the deeps and laid up the seas as your storehouse. And Lord, we give you praise. And Lord, we recognize that as our Creator, you are right and justified in, in telling us how we ought to live and how we ought to uh, uh, bring you glory, the purpose for which you created us. Lord, you are Creator and you are Lawgiver and your laws are right and good and just. Your Word is good, it is right. You love righteousness and justice and goodness. And Lord, we confess that we fall short of that holy standard. Lord, that uh, so often we practice unrighteousness. So often we practice deceit. So often we give our things to that which is not good. And we put our trust in things that cannot save. And so Lord, we recognize this morning as we have gathered together to worship that we stand in need of your mercy and your grace. And Lord, we're so thankful for the provision that you have made for us in Christ Jesus. Dying on the cross for the sins of all who believe. Now risen and exalted and at your right hand, even now interceding for us, sitting as our advocate, our great high priest, the one mediator between us and you. And we're thankful for your provision for us in Christ Jesus. And that forgiveness is a gift of your amazing grace through faith in Jesus. And not of anything that we do, anything we can earn or deserve. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for your mercy. And Lord, we do pray for your intervention in the lives of these that we've mentioned that are needing of, uh, uh, of healing, of care, of peace and difficulty. And so we pray for... Uh, we pray for those in our number that are struggling physically. And Lord, we pray for those who are caregivers, who are providing care. And uh, Lord, we pray for uh, uh, upcoming medical tests, that you would give conclusive results, that treatment plans might be developed that would be effective. And so Lord, we pray for healing and recovery. God, we also pray for your grace as we worship this morning, and we give you thanksgiving and praise for the opportunity that we have, the freedom we have to gather, to assemble, to worship, to preach, and then, Lord, to go out in our communities and speak the truth of Jesus. And we pray that we would not hold that freedom lightly and that we would not take it for granted, Lord, but we would take advantage of the freedom that we have to speak of what we believe and what we have come to know to be true because of the ministry of your Spirit in our hearts and lives. And God, we recognize our, our continued dependence upon the Spirit. We need the Spirit to help us worship in spirit and truth. We need your Holy Spirit to enable us to understand your Word. And we pray that we would do that which is pleasing in your sight, that we would be worshipers like those you seek to worship you in spirit and truth. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Right, I want to invite you to take out your hymnal and turn with me to hymn 304. And turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we've been looking at the ministry of Philip in Samaria, the big city, the former capital city of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel. The kingdom of Israel had their capital city in Samaria, uh, and uh, that city was overrun by the Assyrians, and people were scattered, and uh, other people brought in, they intermarried, and we've talked about the Samaritans and the ministry that was happening there because of the persecution that broke out in Jerusalem after the death of Stephen. The church was scattered in Philip, who was one of the seven, one of the ones that was set apart by the church and by the apostles to serve tables, uh, fled Jerusalem and found himself in Samaria. And when he was there, he began to preach or speak the good news of Jesus. And God validated his message with signs and wonders, uh, just as he had validated the message of the apostles and a great number of men and women believed the gospel, believed about the kingdom of God, that Jesus, the King of heaven, came to earth to call people from every kingdom of the earth into the kingdom of God, and that the Samaritans, too, uh, were invited to repent and believe in Jesus. And many of them believed, and many of them, men and women, were baptized. And even the apostles came down and validated that, uh, to show the church in Jerusalem, the, the Jewish believers, that the Samaritans were not second-class Christians, but uh, full recipients of the Holy Spirit in the same way as the Jewish believers, and also as a message to the Samaritans. You're not second-class. You're not any less. We're all saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and in spite of our ethnic and cultural differences, we are united because we are in Christ. People created in the image of God and then born again by the Spirit of God to be one church, one body. And so Philip is leading this great ministry in Samaria. Wow, things are going awesome. People are being saved. People are being baptized. The church is growing. The apostles have validated. Everything's going awesome. And not only that, even though great numbers have believed, this is a big city. There's a lot of other people around who need to hear the gospel, who need to hear the good news of Jesus. And so Philip is there ministering in this great time of revival. The Lord is adding to the church. It's a time of excitement and joy. And then guess what happens in Acts chapter 8 verse 26. Acts chapter 8 verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he rose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotos, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for your word. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this day. And Lord, that your spirit would guide us into the truth. Lord, that we would understand uh, truth, and that we would apply truth to our lives. And Lord, that in the power of your Holy Spirit, we would walk in truth. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's Philip, baptizing Samaritans. A great revival had broken out. People are responding to the message. He is teaching Christ. He is speaking about the kingdom of God. And he is seeing people repent and believe. He has seen the Holy Spirit come upon these people. And the apostles have come and validated his ministry, validated the, the, uh, the, the revival. This is real. This is a movement of God. This is a work of God. He is doing a great work in Samaria. And Philip had to be excited about the prospects of his ministry there. There's a lot of people in the city that still need to be reached. And as he's there, the word of the Lord comes to him and tells him to get up and go. Leave Samaria. Leave the revival. Leave those services. Leave those meetings that are being so productive. Leave that big city with all of these people who have not heard the message and go along the road which goes from to Jerusalem to Gaza. And then Luke tells us, this is desert. You know what desert means? It means deserted. <laughs> there's nobody there. I'm in this big city. There's all these people, and they're responding. They're coming to the meetings. There's this great revival, and you want me to get up and go to a place where there isn't any people? I'm preaching, and people are responding. And yet you want me to get up and go to this desert road. And as we read through the text, we see... That is because Philip has a divine appointment. The Lord is working in His providence to do a great and mighty work in the heart of one. And we remember Jesus speaking of the Good Shepherd that leaves the ninety and nine and go searching after the one. 
And so here we see this divine appointment. It reminds me of a divine appointment that Jesus had in Samaria. In, in John chapter 4, He's leaving Judea, Jerusalem, and headed toward Galilee. And the Scripture says He must, He had to go through Samaria. And He went through Samaria and had an appointment with a woman who had come to draw water at a well. And she didn't come in the cool of the day when all the other women would come. She came at the high, the heat of the day, high noon, because she didn't want to be the object of their gossip. And Jesus had a divine appointment. And here we see that Philip has a divine appointment. And, and actually there's three, there's three ingredients to this divine appointment. There's a messenger, there is a seeker, and then there is the Word of God. Let's look at those three uh, agents of this divine appointment. First, there is the messenger. There is Philip. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. That is desert. And notice what it says next in verse 27. He arose and went. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. There's great revival going on. There's lots of people. People are being baptized. People are being saved. There's lots of places in the city where we've not yet to go. And the Holy Spirit or the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord comes and tells Philip to get up and go. And Philip arises and goes. He leaves Samaria. He leaves the meetings. He leaves the revival. And he goes to this deserted road that is going from Jerusalem down to Gaza. To this deserted place. And we know Philip. We've met Philip. Back in the day, when uh, Acts chapter 6, when the church in Jerusalem was growing and there was conflict, there was grumbling between the, the Hebrew speakers in the congregation and the Greek speakers in the congregation, and the church was in danger of flying apart, blowing apart. The apostles came together, gathered the church, and said, you need to go and choose some men, seven men, seven men of good reputation, filled with the Holy Spirit, and wisdom to appoint over this matter, to, 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 to ensure the continued unity of the church. And so Philip was one of those seven. And so the church determined that he was a good man. He had a good reputation. The church determined that he was a godly man. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The church determined that he was a gifted man. He was gifted with the Holy Spirit for wisdom. And he began this ministry of serving tables. But like the others in Jerusalem, when persecution broke out, when one of the other seven, Stephen, was murdered in Jerusalem, the church scattered, and Philip went, and he went to Samaria, and there he preached Christ, he preached the kingdom of God, and was experiencing a great revival. So this good, godly, gifted man is sent by God as his messenger. And he's told to leave the many and go and find the one. And Philip did exactly as he was commanded. There is no debate. There is no discussion. There is no delay. The text simply says he arose and went. And so the first thing that we see in this divine appointment is the messenger. The one who is responding to God's message to go, even though it might not make sense to him, it would not have been what he would have planned. It was not what he designed. It would certainly have not been on his radar screen. But he is told to go, and he goes because there is a divine appointment. We have the messenger. The messenger is Philip, and then second, we see the seeker. Uh, he goes, behold, a man of Ethiopia, which tells us something. This man is an African. And most probably would be very dark-skinned. He was an Ethiopian, so he was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. 
What else do we learn about him? He was a eunuch. Now, there's not, any, there's not really any nice way to say this, but he was a eunuch, meaning that his genitals had been removed either by cutting, crushing, or mutilation. And this was common practice in the ancient world for one who would serve in the courts of the king, especially one who would be over the harem. Uh, but we see that uh, Ethiopia has a queen, Candace, but uh, 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 it would be a common practice for a man who was going to oversee the harem to be made to be a eunuch, to have his genitals either cut, crushed, or mutilated so that he would not be tempted to engage in inappropriate intimacy with the, the women of the king's household, his sexual slaves. But this man had grown up uh, from that position to a place of great authority. He was a eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen. In fact, he had charge over all her treasury. He was the secretary of the treasury, so it was this man's signature that was on their dollar bills that they were publishing. This man was in charge of the, the wealth of the kingdom, the treasury of the kingdom. He guarded those riches and the wealth of the Ethiopian queen. He was a man of great prestige, great power, great influence. Probably a very wealthy man provided him a good living. And so he was a man of great authority, had charge of all the treasury. And then we also see that he was a seeker. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And so with his great authority, his great power the good living that he likely made as the secretary of the treasury of the Ethiopian queen, there was still something missing. There was an emptiness in his heart. There was a God-sized void. And he went to Jerusalem seeking after something that he had not found in Ethiopia. And you got to understand, this is a an incredible, an incredibly significant journey. Ethiopia is 1,500 miles from Jerusalem. 1,500 miles. And so, for us, what, what would be an equivalent, Brother Eddie? What's about 1,500 miles from us? Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C., Des Moines, Iowa, where my grandkids live, a 12-hour drive for us, going 70 miles an hour. 1,500 miles. Okay, this guy's in a chariot, and a chariot can probably, on a really good day, if you're really putting the pedal to the metal, can maybe travel 100 miles a day. So we're talking two weeks down a deserted road to go from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. A very difficult and significant trip. And also in that day, you know, there was no Motel 6 to leave a light on for you. <laughs> so you would travel 100 miles on a chariot during the day, and then you would just pull off to a wide spot on the road or a, a, a square in the town and, and camp out. And so that's just one way. 15 days, a hundred miles a day, sleeping under the stars or sleeping in a tent, this man was making a very difficult journey to go to Jerusalem because he was seeking 
to worship the God of Israel. He had heard that there was a God in Israel. And so he embarks on this very difficult trip to go to Jerusalem. And evidently, as we read the text, it appears that he did not find what he was seeking after when he went to Jerusalem. Because he's returning, and he's sitting in his chariot, and he's reading Isaiah the prophet. And when Philip overtakes him, this is kind of a, you look at this, so this man's riding in a chariot, and now Philip is running alongside the chariot. So this guy probably wasn't traveling 100 miles a day because Philip could outrun his chariot. (laughs) So Philip's running beside the chariot, listening to him read the Word of God out loud. And Philip says, do you know what you're reading? And he says, no, I don't. I don't know what I'm reading. I need someone to guide me. I need someone to teach me. And so this man had made this trip to Jerusalem, a very difficult trip, a costly trip, a long trip, a a tiring trip. And had likely not found what he was looking for, but he did manage to purchase for himself a copy of the Word of God. We'll talk about that in point number three. But he was a seeker. He went to Jerusalem, and evidently, even with this long trip, he didn't find what he was looking for. And based on what we know of the religion in Jerusalem during the time of the New Testament, are we surprised that he did not find what he was looking for when he went to Jerusalem? When he got to Jerusalem, all he found was walls. He found intolerance. He found exclusion. He found xenophobia. And so you can imagine this man setting out on a journey, 15 days, 100 miles a day, riding in a chariot, and he comes up over the hill and he sees the beauty of Jerusalem. He sees the city, the holy city. The beauty, the splendor, the majesty, the glory of Jerusalem. And then as the sun sets, you can see the gold just shining and reflecting the the brilliance and the majesty of the sun. He drives up to Jerusalem and just sees the beauty, the splendor, the, the glory of the temple. Knowing that maybe the thing that had been he'd been longing for, the desire of his heart was going to be met there. And when he gets closer and he gets into the temple, he simply finds that there is there are walls. He's a Gentile. And so the farthest that he can go into the temple complex is to the court of the Gentiles, which is not really a place of prayer, but as we know from the New Testament, it had become a marketplace. Money changers were there exchanging currency. People were there selling livestock for the sacrifices. People had traveled to Jerusalem and they came there into the court of the Gentiles to purchase what they needed for worship. It's a marketplace. There's bargaining. There's the the clanging of coins. There's the mooing of of cattle. There's the baying of sheep. There's all of these things going on in the court of the Gentiles. It's a marketplace. It's not a place of worship, a place of prayer for all nations. And if he wants to go past the court of the Gentiles, he goes to a gate in the wall, and on that gate is a plaque that says, if you're a Gentile and you go past this point, you only have yourself to blame for your death. 
And so he'd gone to Jerusalem. And likely, the parent, apparent from the text, he had not found what he was seeking for. He'd found walls. And, oh, by the way, this man's a eunuch. And the Old Testament law specifies that one whose genitals are crushed or mutilated cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. So he may not have even been allowed in the court of the Gentiles. Now, there's one thing in light of our cultural conversation that I'd like to point out in this text. He is a man whose his genitals had been cut, mutilated, or crushed, removed by that. But notice, <laughs> uh, Luke tells us this is a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch. So just because his genitals have been removed or mutilated does not mean that he is a woman. He is a man with crushed, mutilated, or cut genitals. Just want to point that out in our text. So he had gone to Jerusalem seeking and had not found what he wanted. Not found what he was looking for. Had not had the, the desires of his heart answered. He had found walls. He had found intolerance. He had found racism. He had found uh, cultural uh, ostracization. He had found unforgiveness, condemnation, judgment. But he did find a copy of the Word of the Lord. This man was obviously a man of great wealth. A, a scroll in those days would be astronomically expensive, but he's the treasurer of Ethiopia. He can afford it. Because of his education, he's able to read, which most people weren't able to read. He's even able to read the language of the Old Testament. He's very educated. He's very wealthy. And by God's providence, he used some of that wealth to acquire for himself a copy of the scrolls of Isaiah. The Word of the Lord. The Word of God. And that becomes the third part of our divine appointment. We've got a messenger, Philip. We've got a seeker, the man from Ethiopia. And now we have the Word of God, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And as this man is reading, he's been on a long trip. He's already on chapter 53, <laughs> reading out loud. And so we have the Word of God. The man is reading the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. And Philip goes now and overtakes him and asks, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And as he is reading through the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, he reads about a suffering servant. And he's confused. Is the prophet speaking of himself? The prophet speaks of one dying for others being slaughtered for others, and yet he is still alive, he is still speaking. The prophet is likely not speaking of himself, but if he's not, who is he speaking of? Of whom is he speaking? And so notice something else about this man. He's seeking. And he also has a humble, teachable spirit. He's gone to Jerusalem because there's a God-sized emptiness in his heart. Even with all of his wealth and all of his power and all of his influence, all of his prestige, a high position in the government, he's still got an emptiness. And he's searching to fill that emptiness to find real meaning, to find real purpose, to find forgiveness, to find joy. 
He's seeking and he goes to Jerusalem and doesn't find what he needs, but he finds a copy of the Word of God and believes that the answer to what he's seeking perhaps is there and he begins to read it. And yet he has a humility. He's very educated. He can read. He's very educated. He can read in the language of the Old Testament Scriptures. And yet he understands that he needs a guide. And so he's humble. He has a teachable spirit. He recognizes his limitations. And he, being the secretary of the treasury, invites Philip, a common man, into his chariot to guide him. And so he's got the Word of God. So in this divine appointment, we've got the messenger, we've got the seeker, we've got the Word of God. And this man has a teachable spirit and he recognizes that God's Word is true and God's Word is is right and authoritative, but he also understands that God has not only given His Word, but God has given pastors and teachers. God has given those who, who are gifted to explain the Word of God, to guide us into the Word of God, to give us truth. And so he has a humble, teachable spirit. And he invites a common man, Philip, into his chariot to help explain to him what he is reading. He's not arrogant. He's not boastful. He's not a know-it-all. He's got a humble, teachable spirit. And he invites Philip to be his guide. And so Philip, verse 35, opened his mouth and beginning at this Scripture, preached... Jesus to him. And what a great place to begin. As we look at Isaiah 53, the passage of the suffering servant, and next week we'll look at this passage in more detail. As we also observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we will look at the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 that this man is reading about. And Philip begins with this scripture and preached Jesus to him. Oh, I wish I had Philip's outline. I wish I knew the passages that Philip pointed this man to in preaching the Lord Jesus and probably throughout the prophecy of Isaiah. The one whose name is Wonderful Counselor. The suffering servant. The one who laid down his life for others. The one on whom God laid his iniquity right there in that same chapter. God laid the iniquity of us all. And Philip began with this Scripture and preached Jesus. All the theme of the Old Testament is Jesus. The Old Testament points to its fulfillment in Jesus. And Philip took the only Scripture he had, the Old Testament, and preached Jesus to him. And so we've got three ingredients of this divine appointment. We've got the messenger, Philip. We've got the seeker, the Ethiopian man. We've got the Word of God that points to Jesus, that exalts to Jesus, and that shows this man his need. And so Philip left the multitude and went to the one and preached Jesus to him. And this man believed. And it goes on in verse 36, as they went down the road, so they're still riding in the chariot, uh, by God's providence, they come to some water. And the eunuch believes, and he believes that it is important for him to publicly identify with Christ and to publicly profess his faith in Jesus Christ by submitting to believers' baptism. And look what he asked Philip. What hinders me 
from being baptized? Very significant question because he'd gone to Jerusalem. What he had found? Walls. He found intolerance. He found locked doors. Hard hearts. Hatred. Animosity. Rejection. Intolerance. Because of his ethnicity. Because of his physical condition. Because of his past sin. You know, uh, crushing or mutilating the genitals is a rebellion against the created order. This man, either his parents desiring for him work in the king's household, the queen's household, or him wanting that career and the prestige and the power that would come to him. Either his parents did it to him or he chose that for himself to remove his genitals for that occupation. That is a rebellion against God's created order and against God's first blessing. God's first blessing is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God created man and woman in His own image. He created man in His own image. Male and female, He created them. And He created them complementary. And He created them for a purpose to give Him glory and to be fruitful and multiply and fill every corner of this earth with image bearers of God that God might be glorified in every place on the earth because the man and the woman created in God's image are being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with image bearers. And to cut or mutilate the genitals is rebellion against that blessing. And rebellion against that command. Against God's created order. And that's why in Deuteronomy it says, a man with crushed or mutilated genitals cannot be enter into the assembly of God. And so this man asked Philip, is there something keeping me from being baptized? The color of my skin? Is that hindering me from being baptized? It hindered me in Jerusalem. In the religious place. My ethnicity? Is that hindering me from being baptized because I'm a Gentile? I'm not a descendant of Abraham, but I'm a descendant of Ham? Is that hindering me from being baptized? My culture... I'm an Ethiopian. My position in the queen of Ethiopia. My physical condition. And even my personal rebellion against the created order. My rebellion against God related to human sexuality and procreation. Is that going to hinder me from being baptized? Is that a barrier for me and the church? Is there something that keeps me from publicly identifying with Jesus Christ and being welcomed into His forever family? Part of His bride, part of His church. Is any of that hindering me? And what's Philip's answer? None of that hinders. If you believe with all your heart, you may. 
and he professed his faith, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So Philip's saying the only hindrance to your public profession of faith and your identification with Jesus Christ and becoming a part of His church, the only hindrance is unbelief. You're not hindered by the color of your skin. You're not hindered by your ethnicity. You're not hindered by your culture. You're not even hindered by your past sin and your past choices. Repent and believe. The only hindrance is unbelief. And so repent of the sin of unbelief. Believe and be baptized and publicly identify your faith in Jesus Christ. The only hindrance was unbelief. He repented of his unbelief and he confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. So Philip commanded the chariot to stand still and Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Notice they both went down into the water and when they came up out of the water indicating baptism by full immersion the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. And so what's the result of this divine appointment? A lost sheep came home. And he went away joyful. Now this is not normative. This is not prescriptive. Because notice there is no local church. There's no assembly. There is no discipleship. This man does not join the church. But he is baptized and sent back to Ethiopia to be a witness to his newfound faith. This man has a divine appointment in the household of Candace the Queen. Taking his, new, his newfound faith having been baptized by Philip. So there's a divine appointment. There's a messenger, there's a seeker, and there's the Word of God. And so a couple things that we need to think about. First, first and foremost, uh, are you a seeker? Do you recognize that no matter position of power, prestige, authority, none of that provides real satisfaction. None of that provides real peace. None of that provides real joy. And this man had everything that the world would describe as success except for a wife and kids. <laughs> he had everything, and yet he was empty. And he was seeking, seeking the Lord God of Israel, seeking the only one who can provide true satisfaction and everlasting joy. He sought it in Jerusalem, and when he didn't find it, he sought it in the Word of God. And by God's gracious providence, God brought a messenger to guide him to the truth of the Scripture. Has there ever been a place where you've seeked, sought after the Savior, and cried out for mercy and grace and sought to know the truth about Jesus. Second question is, are you a messenger? Are you a messenger? Or are you one who can guide others to see the truth of Scripture? Philip, not a pastor, not an elder in the church, not an apostle. And yet he was able to pick up where this man was. And begin in that Scripture and point him to Jesus. All seekers who have found the Savior have a responsibility to help other seekers find the Savior. 
And Philip was that messenger. And he opened his mouth and began and preached Jesus to him. Third question, do you have a humble, teachable spirit? Not only has God given us His perfect Word, but He's given us pastors and teachers and evangelists. He's gifted people to help guide us in the Scripture. And no matter how much we know, there's always more that we could know and more that we can know and more that we should know. And so we submit ourselves to to guides and to, to, to humbly be taught and to recognize that we need biblical instruction and we need to sit in a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church and be guided in the things of the Scripture. And that's one of the things that is different about this particular passage. There is no mention of how this man is discipled. But again, this is a one-time event as he is going to the ends of the earth with his newfound faith. The first African convert, a eunuch from Ethiopia. But we should have teachable spirits and submit ourselves to be guided in the truth, to have someone, no matter how long we've been walking in the faith, have someone discipling us and leading us and guiding us further into the faith. And to be a messenger sometimes means doing something that doesn't make sense to us. Leave the big city and go to the deserted place. Leave the great, fruitful, effective ministry and go where there aren't any people. Trusting in God's providence. And notice there, there's nothing miraculous about the conversion of this Ethiopian. In Samaria, there were many who were possessed the, the spirits coming out with a loud voice of many who were possessed, many were paralyzed and lame or healed. And in, in Samaria, the message of Philip was accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders, but there's nothing miraculous about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, or at least there's nothing, there's no signs and wonders, but every conversion is miraculous because it's a gift of God's grace. No single sign or wonder validating the message of Philip. But millions of incidents of God's providence bringing this divine appointment about. The Ethiopian man, educated, learned to read, seeking the Lord, going to Jerusalem, being frustrated, purchasing a copy of the Word of God, beginning to read Isaiah out loud all the way to the 53rd chapter, Philip coming, being able to run alongside of a chariot and being able to guide this man in his faith. All of those things, millions and millions and millions of isolated events coming together for this divine appointment to bring the messenger, the seeker, and the Word of God together in exactly the same place. And so this passage shows us God's amazing providence. And that He will save every single one of His 
people. Every single person from whom Jesus died will be saved and be saved by miraculous working of God's gracious providence that He will not lose one single one of His sheep. And He will orchestrate divine providence bringing messengers, seekers, and the Word of God together at the right place at the right time for that sinner, that child of God, to be converted. We see the mighty providence of God. Have you ever been a seeker? Are you a messenger? Do you have an open, teachable spirit and submitted to God's amazing providence? Going where He says to go, doing what He says to do, even when it doesn't make sense. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for this account, Lord, and we thank You for the conversion of this man from Ethiopia. And Lord, we thank You that the only barrier is our unbelief. And that we can repent and believe through the ministry of Your Holy Spirit and be converted. We thank You for the lesson of this text. That even in our rebellion, Jesus is sufficient. That He died to satisfy Your wrath against all who believe. You raised Him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted and You call us to repent of our unbelief and believe, become believing. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God and being welcomed with open arms. And Lord, we pray that You help us to be messengers. Help us to be teachable to be discipled and to be to the point where we can take the Word of God and point someone to Jesus that's seeking, knowing that You are bringing together divine appointments and help us to be faithful messengers when that occurs. And we pray that being found faithful, You would be pleased to make it fruitful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, we're going to close with the final hymn, hymn 420. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. <clears throat> what hinders me from being baptized? If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen.